Business is simple. It's just not easy. We focus on three things to help you run and grow your business more easily. Talent, sales, and how to scale. This is the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. Hey everyone, Brian Whittington with this episode of the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. We have a big guest on our on our podcast today, Andy Paul, author, speaker, podcast host himself with the Sales sales Enablement Podcast with Andy Paul. Uh, so check them out. And also just finished up the book, uh, his book that is called Sell Without Selling Out uh, in preparation for this, the conversation. So really enjoyed that. So all that to say, welcome to the show, Andy. Brian, thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited about this. No, I was really curious in reading your book. So yeah, mm. you're a podcast uh, podcaster. Yeah, you got almost 200,000 followers. So what? Why should we listen to you about how to sell without selling out? Give us a little bit of input on that. Well, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, the best way to make up your mind is just, yeah, follow me on LinkedIn and you know, watch my content and read it and engage with it. That I think is probably the answer right there, right? Is, is uh, as I talk about in the book, it's really hard to, I think, to verbalize why, you know, people should follow you or, you know, pay attention to what you write. They really have to experience you. So, you know, I encourage people to listen to the podcast, uh, which we only have 1,040 episodes so far. And, uh, I post one or two times, so sometimes three times a day on LinkedIn, and you get a sense of who I am. And if what I say resonates with you, then yeah, the book will make a lot of sense to you as well. Now, and the thing that I was a little challenged with the book, you really made me go back and rethink some of um, some of my preconceived oh, notions is whenever good. you're talking about that initial, you got started. And you almost got fired mm. from a bad sales training event. But right. one thing that you said was that you took a sales, um, a sales assessment and it said you shouldn't be into sales at all. So oh, yeah. I, I was kind of curious because the way you mentioned your start into sales and how you performed in that first in that first sales training and you were so uncomfortable with the role plays. Give me a sense of how in the world did you even start in sales whenever, you know, you were sure. that anti-sales, if you will, up front? Well, no, I had no idea what sales was about, right? Yeah, it's like fresh college grad with nobody in my business, in my family had any, I mean, I had some uh, a grandfather that was in shoe sales, uh, had owned a shoe store, but, you know, nothing in a business to business standpoint. And so, yeah, in fact, even at the time when these big tech companies of the day were scooping up all these fresh college grads to put into their training programs, they didn't even call them sales. They called them marketing management training programs. So I think yeah, they were you can't so call sensitive. It sales, right? They didn't even want to call it sales. You knew it was a sales job, but um, yeah, I had no, no idea really. So yeah, I was a little taken aback in that first training class after I'd been on board for two weeks. It's like, uh, yeah, this, this is not me. I can't, I can't act this way. But also was determined, yeah, not to not to quit and try something different is to say, yeah, how do I make this work for me? So you you came back and your manager was saying, Oh my gosh, this this is the, the complete wrong person for this role. Well, the trainer was, yeah. He sent a note to my manager and said, Yeah, Andy's too analytical. He's, he'll never make it in sales, which I thought was always very funny. 
Now, you're right, because, you know, a lot of times, and here's what we found is often it's the engineers that make a really good salesperson because they're very process oriented. They can ask a lot of questions. So a big portion of what your, your sales book was is on how do we make, how do we ask those proper questions? And you didn't call it this, I don't think, but really identifying the vision of the solution. If you can get them to identify the, their vision of the solution. And, oh yeah, and, do specifically, yeah. Talk about oh, the vision of the vision of success. Okay. And yeah, no, I, I haven't worked in, tech before I started my own company 20 years ago, worked in tech for a long time too, with a lot of, you know, leading edge tech companies that, yeah, I made a sort of habit of bringing engineers into the sales role. And yeah, their uniform first response was, well, I can't go into sales. And it's like, well, why not? Because I can't convince somebody to buy something they don't want you know, everybody's perspective, what selling is about, right? Right. I said, well, that's great because that's not the job. The job is to help the buyer solve a problem. Isn't that what you do as an engineer? Solve problems every day? Oh yeah, I can do that. Perfect. Come on over. And they were uniformly great. Now, did you, do you find, um, because you've been mostly in tech and, and, and a lot of um, SaaS type of, of sales, do you find that that questioning strategy, questioning methodology, problem solving works across all industries or mm -hmm. is, okay. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's really just, it's a human based strategy, right? It's not industry specific. It's how do we engage with other, other human beings? Well, we start by being interested in them. You know, how do we make ourselves interesting? Be interested in somebody else. And that's just a set of basic sort of human function that, that we should all be applying in our day-to-day -day lives is first and foremost, be interested in the person we're talking with. And so, yeah, this is nothing specific to tech. <laughs> in fact, people in tech need to use it more frequently um, because sometimes they tend to get too in love with the process as opposed to the people that are the, the objects of the process. Now, and so that's a curious statement. I wasn't expecting you to say process. So you think that they're too in tune with the process, like a band or medic, as opposed to the person or yeah. too in love with the product or offering that they're giving? Well, product and or process, right? So okay. yeah, there's this trend to want to take advantage of the technologies that exist in the marketplace today to say, how do we sort of turn our salespeople into these interchangeable cogs? Uh, there's, there's, you know, one uh, person that knows me well that always hates when I say, you know, turn people into clones of one another. So, hey, we can listen to, you know, all the recordings of the calls with a conversational intelligence system and then train, try to attempt to train sellers to be just like Mike, who's the number one seller, right? And everybody used the words of Mike. Well, they can't because they're not Mike. They need to become the best version of Jennifer and Bridget and, and Brian, not Mike. Yet everybody, this trend is, I want to train everybody to be just like that person, which is self-defeating and it doesn't work in the long run. So managers oftentimes now want to embrace that the tools enabled them to sort of make everybody sort of just like one another and comply to this rigid process. And well, the trouble with the rigid process is that he assumes your buyer is going to conform to it and comply with it, which they don't, you know, and it presumes that 
you know, you've got an ideal client profile and ICP you've developed and personas for the people you talk to at your ICP that you ask them these set of questions are going to answer this way. And they don't because they're all unique human beings that respond to things a little bit differently. So we're better off training people to be able to be responsive to the way things are different from situation to situation than to assume that they're all the same. It's rather curious, right? Is we're giving all of these scripts and I cannot remember the last time that I've ever had the prospect know their line, right? So, and that's, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I really appreciated about what you wrote is it's questioning methodology, questioning philosophy, problem solving. And you can teach that and it doesn't necessarily matter the personality because it, it gets into, can you get to root cause? Can you write the, can you ask the right questions? And I think you pointed this out in your book as well. I might be confusing, but it really gets, it's no longer what you pitch. It's no longer what you, you tell them. It's the way you ask it that gets them to self-realize it, that gets them to make the decisions and, and allow them to move forward with you. So that's sure, really what came across. Yeah, in part. I mean, what buyers are looking for these days from sellers is, it's not these days, they've always looked at this from sellers as, how are you helping me think about my challenges and problems in a way different than what I'm thinking about them, right? I mean, how can you help me see something that I don't see? How can you help me think more broadly and deeply about this, not only from the challenges we face, but the outcomes we want to achieve? I mean, if you can't do that as a seller, you have no value. Because especially today, the buyer just go online and buy your product. Now, and we're, so we're sort of giving, you know, the more we sort of fall into that uh, mode of just pitching and you know, not being of any more value than what somebody can find online, then that's problematic for the future of selling. Now, when you, you so I don't know which assessment you took, you didn't, you didn't mention that, but oh. it said... I'll leave it nameless. Yeah, right. Well, well it's fine. And but you said that it, it showed that you wouldn't be the best salesperson in the world. And time and time again, you know, because we help in, in recruiting salespeople and doing sales sure. consulting, right? And time and time again, we identify, say, these 10 characteristics, success characteristics is what we call it in, in, a, in a salesperson. And so often sales leadership or worse, people that aren't in sales, haven't grown up in sales, but think that they know what a salesperson is. They have all of these negative stereotypes of, of mm -hmm. what you're talking about. Your assessment wouldn't have allowed you to go through, and you had millions of dollars in really large enterprise deals. Oh, yeah. Top performer. And you would have been passed over. I mean, heck, some of my old, old ways of teaching this stuff would have passed you over if I didn't sure. figure some of this out. Sure. So speak to that a little bit. I mean, how would you get people to see an Andy Paul, somebody that can actually do this? Well, I mean, you start with character, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, so my, my, and this is a true story. It was my first interview for my first sales job out of college lasted about a minute. And so I was, my job was to sell computer system. The job they were recruiting for was sell mini computers at the time, mini computers. So, you know, room full of iron to small, mid-sized businesses for accounting applications. And I was a history major in school, but I'd taken some accounting and 
And so I guess I you know, passed the resume screen part, but going for my first interview, meeting with the sales manager, sitting across the table from me. And other than just saying hi, the first question out of his mouth was an accounting question. Now, it's not what I was expecting at all, right? <laughs> <laughs> not at all. And I froze. It's like, uh, <laughs> and the thing is, I knew the answer to the question, but I just, I was just, and so after what seemed like forever, uh, pause, I said, um, here's the thing. I know the answer to this question. I just can't find it in my brain at the moment. Can I go home tonight, find it, and call you tomorrow with the answer? And with that, it's not saying a word, closes his portfolio, stands up, leaves the room. Hmm. I'm thinking, that <laughs> <laughs> just blew my first interview. And like, you know, any young kid is like, what am I gonna tell my parents? Um, and a few minutes later, this other gentleman walks into the room. He introduced himself and he said he was the big boss in the office. Yeah. And the guy was talking with Ray and he said, you know, Ray tells me he wants to hire you. And that was it. Interesting. Now, how did now, you do? And so, so incredible lesson for a young person to say, look, I didn't try to BS my way out of it. I you know, showed good character. I showed integrity. Yeah. I'm not going to admit to something I don't know, try to bluff my way through it. And I'll, yeah, let me look it up and I'll follow up with you, right? There's something I don't know. And that sealed the deal for the hiring manager. Now, because a couple of things come out of this. When you're in sales, you have to be quick on your feet, not get, not, not get, um, you know, whenever flustered. you're on, yeah, flustered under fire. Thank you. Um, so you didn't display that, but you did show character. So two two thoughts come out of there. Absolutely agree with you that we should uh, we should hire for character. How long did it take for you to start seeing success with that company? Did you how did you end up doing with them? Oh, great! So I was President's Club every year. I was there. Wow. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I was determined. I said at a pretty early age to to in my career is to try to make sales work for me, not the other way around. And required sort of blazing my own my own trail, and in that early environment that that company, it was possible to do. Yeah, yeah, we had a process, we had a framework for how we went about things, but by the same token, something that we don't hear as much anymore in sales is my manager managers were very clear. Hey, this is your patch which in my case turned out to be a vertical market talking, selling to construction industry. You're the CEO of your business. You don't hear that very much anymore as sellers. You're the CEO of your business. Yeah. We've got this framework, both from a process and ethical standpoint that we want you to operate within, but other than that, go make it happen. And yeah, that gave me the freedom to go out and experiment and try different things that, that might work for me and try to, uh, you know, reconcile myself to some degree in the early years with with this profession. And yeah, I find a way to make it work. Now, so you start with character, allow your people to experiment, mm -hmm. give them autonomy, right? Be their CEO yep. of their own. Um, now, back then, because um, I'm guessing, what time frame was this? Do I have to say? 
Roughly, right? So my guess is it was before the ubiquitousness of all this knowledge right now. Sure, it's pre-internet for sure. Yeah, so so pre-email, pre-internet, there wasn't ways that you could go and watch a DJ Dorsey or uh, you know an Andy Paul and get all this all of this information. Oh, listen to Zig Ziglar and Earl Nightingale tapes in my car. <laughs> yeah, right, with the record player. <laughs> with so, cassette tapes, yeah. So were you a were you a lifelong learner from from the get go, yeah. or when did that really come in? Okay, so yeah. and that's the other key piece that we find in really key in really good salespeople is that that growth mindset, that growth mindset, lifelong learner. But you've also talked about you seem to have an internal intuitive um, motivation, right? That you had that you were driven to succeed in sales. What was that driver for you? I mean, why sales? Because you could have probably done anything. Why did you choose to succeed in sales? Probably just very competitive person. Yeah, with myself, uh, more than anything, right? So I, from a you know young age, I've swimmer, runner, so constantly, you know, challenging myself in that regard. So I think this idea of, of taking on challenges and trying to, to master them was just sort of integral to who I was. Um, and then, yeah, lifelong learner. Yeah, from big reader from really early age, you know, read, started reading early in life. Uh, excuse me, as you had older siblings that are big readers. My mom was a big reader, just read so constantly. So yeah. Always wanted to keep learning and and you know for me as it's sort of involved in my career on my career sort of evolved is is you know, have these sort of distinct chapters where at certain points of time yeah I did something that perhaps not everybody would do but took a risk took a chance going to a new business new industry learning new things and I was just always sort of propelled forward by that is. Yeah, I've done this. What's next? Type thing, and even up till, you know, hey, I didn't publish my first book till ten years ago when you know many people are already planning their retirement, and uh, you know, three books, over a thousand podcast episodes, and and counting. It's just like that's what keeps me going. I think this, yeah, one of the great things about the sales career is you're given the opportunity to be exposed to these things. Yeah, you know, I can't think of another career for me that would have been easy to have had the experiences I've had traveling the world, you know, literally sold on every continent, but Antarctica, um, talked to these fascinating peoples, exposed to these incredible different cultures and you know, ways of doing business, just way of living that certainly broadening for me, but all came about from being in sales, being curious about the next thing. And that extends to customers. Now, when you were construction industry, construction vertical, those those folks are notoriously not the most, you know, uh, tender loving people in the universe. No, uh, and that's the that's but that's the thing I make point I make to people is that okay, so my first job I was 21, 22, looked much younger, looked like I was 15 or 16 years old, <laughs> going in talking to these CEOs and founders of these construction companies, and they gave me their time. So why would they do that? And the reason why is I was 
sincerely interested in learning about them and their business because I, I knew nothing about it. Maybe that was to my benefit that I knew absolutely nothing coming from ground zero. But talking to these people, I said, asking, just continuing to ask thoughtful questions. I didn't need to have, I did, clearly didn't have the answers to, to many of the questions <laughs> they asked me, but I made a point of getting back to them quickly and being very responsive and developing this idea that, that I didn't need to know everything, but I needed to be able to be responsive to their requests for information. You find that people just give you time. Now, and that's, what, it's pretty simple. Show that you're interested in other people. You'd be surprised how much, what they'll give you. Now, what would you say to those out there that say, well, you shouldn't give away that information that, you know, as soon as you give, give up the information, you lose leverage. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I'm in a, I'm in a business today where I give away all my knowledge yeah. every day on podcasts posting on LinkedIn multiple times a day in my books, right? Yet I'm a consultant. I'm a coach, um, a, you know, a speaker. People pay me to speak. It's like, I'm giving that information away all the time for free. So what? I mean, if, if people can learn the extent of your value, so if you're a consultant, you're trying to engage with, with a new client and, and you think, you know, a 30 minute call with a, a potential client is going to give away your, you know, your secret sauce so that they're not going to need you anymore. <laughs> then you've the pretty thin sauce you're selling. Yeah. Right. And it's the same true as selling your product is, is you give to get in this world. And there's going to be more value that your product or service offers than what you can explain to someone in a, in a sales interaction. Now you, you talk about, you learned not to persuade, but rather influence. Was that something that took a while for you to, to wrap that? You, you just intuitively do it, but you didn't actually know why, or talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that was a little bit intuitive is, well, a combination of things. One is that's just not my personality. And um, so I think part of it. And, and also it's just, yeah, you've, you're in this business. See, you know, the thing about selling is this is such a people business is you have to be thoughtful about it, right? You have to be intentional about it. You got to be a, aware of how people are responding to you, right? This is you know, part of why I talk about being so salesy is, yeah, you know, you're out there as a sort of blunt hammer trying to persuade people to do things. And you just don't care how you're being received because you're going to go out and do it again the next day. And so for me, I think for people that really do well consistently is, yeah, you're, you're always attuned to how you're being received. And uh, for me, what I found is better to say, look, maybe just got a little more analytical bent as, as I was told up front is, I really need to find out what's, what's really important to these people. Yeah, an early boss that really stressed this, right? As they said, you know, selling's really simple, not easy, simple, but you go find out what's important to these people and see how you can help them. I mean, it was, it's really not a lot more complicated than that. So yeah, I sort of learned that through just through experience that that was a more effective way. And then as I started moving into more complex selling with lots of people involved in the decisions and, and, you know, multifaceted aspects to what we we're selling is that, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't persuading people at all is, is you were helping them to a certain degree 
see the problem differently. And that's one of the ways you added value. And that's one of the ways you influenced the choices and the trade-offs that they made in terms of how they could solve their problem. And so I found, wow, I was asking really great questions and penetrating questions and enabled the customer, built the level of trust so the customers would open up more fully with me. Then I was going to, you know, A, gain insight into what was most important to them. And I would also gain insights to help them think about the problems in a way that, that was aligned with what we were offering. But let me set you up with a little bit of a softball here. So, okay, yeah. So, you know, you got to influence rather than persuade. You got to get the relationship. That's going to take way too long. I need to hit my numbers. I got VC, <laughs> free them down my neck, right? What would you say to that person? Yeah, it's like, yeah, you got it all wrong. And I've, I've, I've yeah, heard this a lot, right? So, oh, I know you. you know, <laughs> That's why I'm in a relationship with the book is people like, I've got a number to hit. So therefore, I must act salesy, right? I got to be more salesy. I got to be fake urgency. If I, if I need to hit my numbers, I can't afford to act like a human being. And yeah, my response is, well, you've got that 180 degrees wrong is the more you act like the you know, persuasion-driven, self-interested, salesy salesperson, longer it's going to take. You know, your only tool when you act like that to deploy is let's give it away. Yeah. Right? Because a discount can make up for being very transactional with the buyer. But the thing is, your buyer knows you're being transactional at that point. They're not under, under no illusions. You're really there to help them. They know that you're trying there to get an order. So yeah, they'll take advantage of that from time to time. They'll they'll go for the discount. They're going to churn pretty quickly because they know you don't really care. Especially at the end of the quarter. It's Especially at the end of the quarter, every month. It's like, you know, and I talk about this in the book is if you really want to build trust with someone is, is you have to be completely transparent about your motivation. So if you're going out to someone and saying, to a prospective buyer and saying, look, we're here to help you, right? Really sincere about this. Look at my eyes. We're here to, you know, I'm trustworthy, here to help you until you get to the last week of the month. And it's like, yeah, what do we got to do to get you to sign an order this month? <laughs> but it happens every month. Yeah. And people think they need to act this way. You don't need to act this way. If you're building the connections and the trust with your buyers and helping them, as I lay out in the end of the book is, yeah, there's a way to shorten decision cycles. And it's not by being salesy. It's by being the opposite. By helping yeah. the customer get to the point where they have this vision of what success looks like, you know, the vision solution, but the vision of success, if you can be the first seller to get to that, is buyers are going to pull the trigger more quickly because what they've said is, wow, this is good enough. This will work for us. Let's do it. So can you talk about, because that's where I was hoping you were going to go. And, and let's talk about that good enough. Because whenever I read that, <laughs> that kind of threw me. And I thought, oh, son of a gun. Because I was that person that I knew that we had a better solution, that we were a better option, that, you know, all of this stuff, I knew that. And yet they went with something else. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks whenever I read that. Um, so speak to that a little bit. Sure. What is this whole good enough piece about? Right. So. This is the decisions your customers make and not 100% of the cases, but yeah, enough so that it's, it's the norm is what's, they make the good enough decision, meaning that, and there was uh, research that was done on this by a Nobel Prize winning economist named Herbert Simon, uh, part of what he called his theory of bounded rationality. 
But I said that, you know, people will look for a solution that until they find a solution that satisfies their requirements and suffices to enable them to hit their desired outcomes. And he created this word, this combination of, of satisfy and suffice called satisfices. And so people, your buyers, they will look for solutions until they find a solution that satisfies their requirements and suffices for them to hit their desired outcomes. Because what they do at this point, and this is more critical today, even than when Simon was writing about this, which was 40 plus years ago, hmm. was that the differences between products and services these days are even more narrow than they've ever been, right? Especially like in the software world, if there's a feature you don't have, give me 30 days, they'll have it, right? <laughs> so in your buyer's mind's eye, the products are basically interchangeable, right? So what's, what's, what's the value to them of continuing to invest their time and attention looking for an additional solution if the solutions are basically the same? Yeah. Right? So the marginal return on that is zero. So what they say is, look, we could spend another 90 days trying to make our decision. What are we going to get from that? And I think of all the people that are involved in this decision that are taking time away from the real jobs to look, be part of the buying committee. Let's just make, let's just do this. This is good enough. And that's the way decisions get made. Now, was, is it the first to that um, vision of success or is it the first, is that getting to that vision of success, the one that gets the first pilot? Um, to unpack that a little bit whenever you're in a more of a complex sale. Right. Well, I think it's really the first to understanding. Okay. Right. So I have these, these first, right? First to connection. Well, why is that important, Milestone? Well, because it's that level of connection that dictates how open the buyer will be with you about their problems and the things that they're trying to achieve, right? Things that are most important to them. Right. That's not a level playing field. If you don't establish that connection, buyer may answer some questions, but it's not the same depth you're going to get to really build that trust. As I talk about in the book, you try and get to that point where the buyer gives you permission to stick your nose into their business, right? So you think about that way. So first to connection, first to trust, first to understanding, right? When you really understand, then you know what the target is. Now, if you're coming in just as, you know, the salesy pitch oriented persuasion driven salesperson that's selling out, you're selling without understanding what the target is. So, and the, the demo is not going to help. <laughs> demo is not going to help because you don't know what you're aiming at. Yeah. Whereas, once you get that level of understanding, then what you do is you work with the buyer to create this vision of what success will be for them. What will that look like? Because at the end of the day, if you're, it doesn't really matter what you're selling, when the buyer makes the decision to go ahead with you, they're not buying your product, they're not buying your service. In their mind, what they're buying is that vision of what success with your product or service will look like, yeah. right? They're buying the outcome. And so you don't you know, just present that to the buyers. That's your, part of your process as you interact with them. You're going to be building this. And I talk about this in the book, this little step-by-step building what this vision looks like. So that when you get to that point, it's like, that's good enough. So let's go through the four pillars because- um, sure you break this out in a fairly easy way, right? So you talk about the four pillars and we just talked about the first one, that first to connect or that connection, which right. is really the building of the trust. Um, what are the other three? 
So yeah, I call these the sell-in pillars, the pillars of selling in, contrast with selling out. So connections, first one, curiosity is the second one. And just as a group to contrast them with selling out behaviors, the way that we've trained so many of our professional salespeople is the way we train salespeople in these salesy behaviors. Those are learned behaviors, right? These aren't, those people aren't innately salesy or pushy. I mean, I'm sure there's a few exceptions, but in, in the main, right? <laughs> so for selling in behaviors, connection, curiosity, understanding, generosity, these are, these are innate human behaviors. We are, we are wired to be these things. So leaning into them, uh, it should be much easier for most sellers. So curiosity, that's how we navigate the world, right? From the moment we're born, how do we learn how to operate and survive in the world that we're in? What's our curiosity, right? We touch things, we smell things, we, we ask questions of parents, you know, it's, and then we sort of scale up as a go. So that, I, I think to a, a, a greater or less extent, Everybody is curious. Some people may be more than others. Some may have learned how to suppress their curiosity because they've been told, hey, stay within the lines, right? Color right. within the lines. And so absent that though, we need to encourage people to say, be more curious. Too often in sales, we sort of, again, discourage it because it's like, hey, we've got this playbook. We've got these questions based on whatever methodology we're using. These are the questions we ask. So? What do you get from knowing, from asking those questions? What you get is you get a handful of information for which you really have very little context, right? Unless you continue to ask, to understand what's really most important to the buyer, what do you know? You don't understand. I mean, you know, but what do you understand? You don't understand hardly anything. So well, go ahead, sorry. No, 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 I was gonna say, so off of that curiosity, you lay out um, really the six types of questions uh, that, that hit that. So I think you were, you're just talking about one of them, which is the follow-up questions. Um, right. I don't know if you have these things memorized, but you, you have, sure. uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, follow-up questions are so simple and yet overlooked so often because sellers are sort of trained to ask this question. This is what you should expect roughly the buyer to say, right? But, and it's, it's curious because you train the seller, and this is true for recruiting too. They'll ask the question and they think that they're doing a good job because they ask the question, but yeah. that question is just the primer. It's really the conversation <laughs> and the uncovering the of it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So two really simple follow-up questions that anybody can ask is you ask a, a good question and you listen to the response. And you know you should go deeper. You can see the customers open the door. They want to go deeper. Is two simple questions. One is, oh, interesting. And what else can you tell me about that? And what else can you tell me about that? The second one is not really a question, but it's a question. Is say, oh, that's interesting. So tell me more about that. And then you can ask a couple of those in a row, right? As long as you're still getting, getting good information. Now, sellers are good, <laughs> well-trained sellers are taught that when, if you've asked some follow-up questions is to sort of summarize back to the buyer, reflect back to the buyer, what you think you heard. And which is good practice, but they oftentimes miss what I think is the real important question you ask after you've reflected back to the buyer, which is, okay, this is what I think I heard. 
They confirm. He's like, great. So what are we missing? Hmm. Right? We just tied it up in a neat bow. Now, what are we missing? And it's a powerful question for customers to go, oh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe this. And it sort of starts the conversation again. And it's just this really easy thing to ask is, yeah, just when you think you, you've got a complete understanding, just when you think the buyers agreed, yeah, you've got the understanding, take it one more level down. <clears throat> That's making, a good nugget there. Yeah, making a buyer feel understood, as I talk about in the book, is one of the greatest sources of value you can provide to your buyer. This is a huge differentiator between you and competition is making the buyer feel heard and understood. So, you know, great way to do this is, is you know, get rid of your slide decks, work on the whiteboard, <laughs> diagram things out, involve the buyer in that, you know, as we're going back now into more and more in-person meetings, is if you're staying on a whiteboard, call the buyer up, hand them the, the dry eraser and say, yeah, I started this diagram. Can you finish this part of it? Yeah. As you start involving them in it. And then, yeah, you've, A, you're starting to co-create that vision of success, but you're also ensuring that you can really understand what's important to them. And it's, so what are we missing? Because oftentimes, it's kind of curious. In the old days, the sellers were the ones that had all of the information. Now, by far, the buyers have so much more information, but oftentimes they're so close to the, the problem that they can't solve it because they're too close. Sure. And, and they're really leaning on that buyer that's seen this, this before where they can help ask the right questions to uncover this. So I really like that question. So what are we missing? Because that just opens it up and it forces them to think. And that's what's really going to set you apart from everyone else because it's no longer what you can say or no longer what you tell them, it's how, what you ask them, what you get them to self-realize. So, well, and through that, though, you get to the sort of the heart of the book, which is <clears throat> what you're doing is you're creating a positive buying experience for the buyer. Right. Because, again, if, if the differences between products are perceived to be thin, what's the basis on which the buyer makes their decision? Well, we know from Challenger and Gartner and Forrester and others that, hey, you know, the decision really sort of hangs on the buyer's experience with you as a seller because everything else is the same. So what, what differentiates you? What's, it's you. And I so, think that goes to your third pillar, which is understanding, because if you yeah. don't have that connection, that ability to trust, if you're not able to ask those deep probing questions to really uncover the, the why behind the what's going on here, then you won't be able to display understanding. And the reason that we get fired, even if we make that sale, the reason that we get fired is because most organizations don't believe that the seller or that company understands them well enough. And I think mm -hmm. this really sets up the foundation for a long, long relationship. And that's where the profit is in any company is the renewal, that long relationship. Net new business is so expensive to get. Yeah. Yeah, and there's this, along with that, there's sort of this mythology is that, I don't say mythology, I mean, there's, you survey buyers and they say, look, we don't get any value out of our meetings with sellers, right? C-level people and so on. They don't understand our concerns. And I would say, you don't necessarily need to understand their concerns. I mean, yes, 
as you get experience, you want to gather product knowledge and industry knowledge, customer knowledge. But again, you don't know what their most important thing is going in there. You're not going to know until you start asking questions. So I think you know, I hear all these sellers talking about, well, yeah, I'm a little nervous about this call because I, you know, I think they have pretty high expectations, and I, I just feel like, you know, I don't know enough about their business, their particular business, you know, a particular customer's business. Ask questions. You know, it's how you how you lead into it. You know, they think you're just you know asking questions because you want to ask questions. They think you're asking questions because you're truly interested, and they can tell by the types of questions you ask. You don't need to have all the answers. You'll find out the answers. That's why you're asking questions. Yeah. And, and really that understanding, you point out that knowing doesn't under equate to understanding. So just asking those questions doesn't, doesn't equate. So whenever no. you're talking about understanding as that third pillar of, of selling in, mm-hmm. um, unpack that a little bit more. Is it simply sure. make sure that you understand their environment? Is it building business acumen or is it understanding their goal? Well, it's elements of all of those, but you know, at the end of the day, in almost every deal you're going to work, there's always one thing that's more important than everything else. And your job is to find out what that one thing is and who it's most important to. And if you can do that, then you're going to be in the, the pole position. And it just takes, it, yeah, it takes time. It takes asking the right questions and making sure you're, you're asking questions that I talk about really at two levels. Right is is when you're talking to a stakeholder in a decision, somebody that could be on the buying committee, is it's not enough to understand what their perspective is in terms of how this decision would benefit the company. You need to understand how they think it'll affect them personally, because they may think it's a great deal for the company, but if it's bad for them personally, then they could be influencing the buying committee in an adverse way. You're not even aware of it. Not just because you know it doesn't mean you can necessarily change it, but if you don't know it, you definitely can't change it. So <laughs> you have to you know, have to continually be probing. And this is part of the reason I'm so disturbed, by the way, so many sales leaders lay out their sales process and they say, look, we've got this linear stage-based process. You know, we've got five, six steps or whatever. And one of those steps is discovery. And you have to have an, you know, we have these defined exit criteria for our discovery stage. And it's one of the biggest disservices we give to sellers to have them think that somehow discovery fits in a box because you need to ask questions and discover every single interaction you have with the buyer up to the point where they sign the order. You're still learning. I mean, if you're in a very competitive situation, let's say there's two or three other vendors that you're competing with and it's a relatively complex sale, well, what's the buyer doing when they're not with you? Well, they're talking to other vendors. What's happened in those conversations? Well, the vendors are trying to do the same thing you're doing is they're trying to sort of shape the perspective of the buyer in a certain way. So the buyer is getting educated. The buyer is getting smarter, perhaps, about the requirements and smarter about what they might potentially achieve. And if you've put away your questions because you think you've identified what the target is in this neat little discovery box, you're going to miss it altogether because the buyers changed as a result of being, of educating themselves during this process. So you have to stay engaged with questions. You have to make sure you're on top of where they are as well and what their perspectives are and how they might be changing. 
And it, does your understanding still apply? And, and you bring up a, a good point as well as at the end of this, um, at the end of every engagement, you have a summary to make sure that there is a true mutual understanding mm -hmm. of, of next steps. And, and I don't know where it is in the notes, um, but you had a really good point in that in that summary. And shoot, if I can't remember it, I'll try to find it and put it in the notes for, for the conversation. Sure. But sure. yeah, you brought up a really good point about the summation of it. And I can't for the life of me recall what it was. It was just a... Well, part of it too is just confirm everything, right? Is is confirm your understanding. Yeah, ask the what missing question. Yeah, it's almost like you want to have the buyer, you know, rate rate your call with them, your interaction with them, like a, a Yelp rating. Is yeah, did you meet their expectations? Did they get out of this what they wanted? Did they make progress toward making the decision as a result of? excuse me, as a result of interacting with you. And that's, that is the bottom line, right? Is every time you consume some of the buyer's time and attention, they're investing that in you. Are they earning a return on that investment? And that return is denominated by progress, right? As a result of this interaction, it doesn't matter what's, doesn't matter whether they're reading your email or listening to a voice message or you know, actually on a Zoom call or in a person meeting or whatever, if they can't look back at that interaction and said, okay, that helped, right? We're a little bit closer to making a decision or we're a lot closer. They're going to say, yeah, it wasn't really a good use of our time. And if you string some of those together, hey, they're going to stop returning your calls. They're going <laughs> to say, look, we made a decision. Yeah, oftentimes, you know, sellers get a little confused. They think, I don't understand this buyer's ghosted me. And I say, well, no, they've made a decision. Yeah. Well, no, they haven't made an order yet. Give, give anybody an order. I said, no, but they've made a decision about you. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's personal. You know, not personal as in you're a, a bad person, but personal as in they didn't see any value and continue to interact with you. And I liked how you, you defined um, value as well, um, where value equals progress, right? Right. Are you helping them progress to solve this problem as humanly or as fast as humanly practicable, right? Not possible, but practicable. Right, and that's what they want. That's what buyers want. I, I try to simplify in the book so people just understand this. What is your buyer trying to accomplish? When they are given a task or create the task to go out and, and purchase a product of some sort, and they bring maybe various people from various parts of the company together, well, that's not those people's primary jobs, right? You're, yeah. you're distracting them from what they really get paid to do. So what is your buyer setting out to do? What they want to do is they want to quickly gather and make sense of the information they need to make an informed decision with the least investment of their time and attention possible. That's it. So are you helping them achieve that in your interaction with them or are you not? And then the last phase that you go into is that the last pillar is generosity. Right. I know this, this is the one that will probably get a lot of people, you know, ah, what the heck, generosity. So unpack that a little bit. Why generosity? Well, I, I believe selling is fundamentally a generous act, an act of generosity. Think about it. So as I said, I think selling is, first and foremost, you listen to your buyer. That's a generous act. Listening to someone, you know, listening to really understand, generous act. To understand what's most important to them. That's also a generous act. And then to help them get what's most important to them, 
also a generous act. So if you're selling from this position of service, yeah, you're being generous to help the buyer understand those things that, yeah, better understand things that are most important to them and your work with them to help them achieve it. And so I talk about in the book is, is, yeah, we, generosity makes us feel good. Giving makes us feel good. We don't want to be uh, what I call unrestrained givers. And we see some sellers default to that where they're just, yeah, they're not learning about the product. They're not learning about the customer. So they're just going to go throw everything on the wall that they possibly can. Right. And that doesn't work, right? You gotta be, you have to be intentional about how you're giving to enable the buyer to make progress. And at the heart of that is what I talk about in the book is called a value plan. Something very simple for, you know, that you should be able to answer these two questions about every, what you consider a qualified opportunity. So every qualified opportunity in your pipeline, if you're a manager, you should be asking these of your sellers <laughs> during your pipeline review, if you're a seller, you should make sure that when you get to the pipeline review, you can answer these two questions, which is first question, what value, what does the buyer need from us in terms of value during this interaction today in order to make progress toward making a decision? And two is as a result of us having given the value, what are the next steps they're gonna to commit to taking? Very simple. And if you can't answer those questions about every opportunity in your pipeline, then you have to go back and revisit your connection, make sure you earn the trust to be able to ask the right type of questions, go back and, and uh, probe a little bit deeper with the buyer, a little wider, so make sure you really understand what they need from you. But you need to be able to answer that question so that every time you interact with them, you're doing it with this intent of helping them make progress. Yeah. Otherwise, well, you're gonna risk wasting the time. Yeah, and the, the curious thing is, right, there's nothing new under the sun. This is Dale Carnegie. This is a challenger sale. This is questioning strategy with spin. And I guess that that brought up is we know this. Why in the world do you think that people just keep going back to the same, back to the same and just trying to force this stuff? I mean, you have any sense? You talk to a lot of people. I mean, what's... Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it gets back to... I've been wondering about that myself. And I think it gets back to this, this idea you and I touched on earlier, which is really coming from leadership, though it infects sellers, is that you have to act a certain way if you're gonna hit your number, right? If we're not really salesy and pushy and yeah, persuasion driven, how do we hit our monthly number? Which is, as I said, 180 degrees wrong because the way you hit your month, monthly number is you engage with the buyer, you connect with them, you, you earn that trust. So they're going to be more open with you about the things that are most important to them, the ways you can help them. They'll be more open to your, your questions that help them think a little bit differently about what they're trying to do. That stuff doesn't take more time. Actually, it really takes less time. Because, because you hit that level of understanding. You know, one of the, there's this metric that almost no company tracks, which I'm going to be spending more time writing about in the coming years, is you ask somebody, well, how long is your sales cycle? And this is sort of, I talk about in the book about insight questions, right? This is a question you, you ask somebody that about their business that they might reasonably be expected to know, but probably don't. And 
and it triggers a conversation. And so when I'm working with CEOs as a sales consultant, I'll ask them, I'll say, so how long is your sales cycle? Number one answer so, oh, is it depends. <laughs> well, they'll say, they'll say, oh, you know, 60 days, 90 days, 30 days. I said, well, no, that's, that's, that's just a duration, right? What I want to know is how many hours of selling time do you have to invest between from the initial point of contact to the time you close an order? Hmm. How many hours of selling time do you invest? And no one has a clue. In a but the thing is, this is, this, is, this is the very definition of productivity, right? What is your, what, productivity is a rate of output generated by a unit of input. How much revenue are you generating per hour of selling time? Because that dictates your productive capacity as an organization. You don't really know how much you can achieve if you don't know that. Go ahead. No, I was just going to piggyback on that because that's a really key point because it, that gets into theory as constraints. Sure. Because if you don't know the hours required to be able to close a close an opportunity, um, then you don't know how big your sales team is going to be. And you just keep throwing, and I see this happening all the time. You just keep throwing bodies. bodies at it, right? So you can, well, I'll give them this quota. So surely we're going to hit this number, right? And they have no idea. They have no idea. So this is how you calculate. If you're a sales leader, this is how you calculate your what I call your productive capacity as a sales organization. When you know this information, then you can say, oh, well, Brian takes X number of hours to generate a million dollars in revenue. And maybe David does it in 1.5 times Brian. They both hit their numbers, but one takes yeah, twice as many hours to make it happen. Well, you could say, well, hmm, that's probably not as sustainable because that means you have to take 50% more of your customer's time in order to, to make this case, right? So there's something that we can do to work with Dave to help him reduce those hours because something he's missing something. Yeah. But this is, this is really where we, as a profession, we need to get to is stop worrying about activity and let's worry about really just purely how effective are we in the moments that matter, meaning the moments that we're given to interact with our buyers. So it's not activity, it's productivity. It's real productivity. It's not productivity as in, oh, I did a thousand calls this month. <laughs> Didn't That's have... not productivity. And the thing is, you know, I posted about this yesterday on LinkedIn and <clears throat> about, you know, is our sellers more productive today than they were, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And there's, you know, all these people have vociferous answers about, you know, anybody that thinks they're less productive today is, you know, has no idea what they're talking about. And it's like, yeah, but you're just talking about the ability to make more calls and send more emails and contact more buyers. That has nothing to do with productivity. Productivity is just measured on the revenue you generate per hour of selling time. And there's no data that exists to suggest on an inflation adjusted basis that sellers today are <laughs> any more productive than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago, despite having all this technology at their disposal. Well, it's, it's kind of funny. There's a gentleman, Todd Capone, uh, Capone, Todd Todd. Capone. and um, he talks about how salespeople ruin everything. And really what we've done is we've taken all this sales enablement and we've made it so noisy out there that we have to do all of that extra work just to get to the point of the conversation, because that point of that first time conversation through to close, there's nothing that's really 
made that too terribly different. It's all still the the the, the tackling, the the blocking and tackling. Now there's a few things coming out that are supposedly going to be able to help, um, but that that's what you're really talking about, I think, right? Is right. in that it, from that first time conversation all the way through to close. That's the 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 hours of productivity. All that other front end stuff. That's just prospecting. A, it's just prospecting. B is, yeah. <laughs> I think if companies would get really smart about this, we'd say, look, is any activity that you undertake that is not directly connected to an order is ultimately unproductive, Yeah. right? So knowing that, what would you do differently? How do you teach yourself to become, to make more of those outbound calls productive, to make more of your out, you know, proactive outreach via email and other channels productive, meaning it leads to the order? It's just a matter of learning, but instead of learning, we're just doing more of it. Oh yeah, we've, we've got the subject line that converts at a higher rate, sure. But you know, fact is that in the SaaS world, for instance, is that it's considered really good if your win rate among your most qualified opportunities is thirty percent. Yeah, that's considered really good. And it's kind of curious, where do they start that 30%? Because if they start that 30% from the first time meeting that exploratory Oh, no, call, this is qualified opportunities. Yep. Sales, sales qualified opportunities in your pipeline that, you know, at the start of a period that you're forecasting are going to close, 30%. Yeah. Now, in my mind, that's really bad. <laughs> and it doesn't need to be that way. Yet it's become sort of a way that's accepted, which... The point is, look, if we just put enough crap into the top of the pipeline, in top of the funnel, if it just flows through, if we're just mediocre at what we do, we're going to close 20 to 30% of it. And if you think about the going up just a touch more, the first time conversation, so not a, not a call, not that initial conversation, but where you're having a substantive conversation where yeah. you're going to find out a little bit about the business case, you, depending on the complexity of the sale, you'll need between eight to 14 of those just to close one deal, just to get enough of those into your pipeline to get that 30%. So the amount of work on that front end, especially if you're net new cold, is just incredible. Um, and so being more effective there and, and then allowing your team to be more effective in this pipeline management using these skills that you're talking about. I mean, if you really want to work on productivity, it's, it's doing these small things, giving your team the time to actually be able to do these. And then maybe if you're going to measure KPIs, which I think you should, mm -hmm. maybe you should look at the KPIs a little bit differently. Like, hey, let me see your pre-call plan. Did you ask those two questions? Let me see your, um, your, your post-call or your post-meeting summation. Did they sign off on that? So you can change up those KPIs to be able to make it more effective through this. So Well, and you have that ability because you can now, like I said, more and more companies are recording calls and recording interactions. So you can actually you know, analyze them and see what's, see what's taking place. But there's still this big gap that's missing because even companies that are doing that fairly proactively are doing it still and operating with fairly low win rates. Yeah. And, and this is the big, big gap, you know, that, that needs to be addressed because in my mind, because, you know, it's, it's, yeah, sort of this article of faith, especially in a you know, new business that you have to go out and you find product market fit before you start scaling your sales team and your sales processes, which is great. But if you're only winning 20 to 30% of your most qualified opportunities, can you really argue that you have product market fit? Yeah. Or is your 
selling process just so lacking that that's really the issue that you have product market fit, but you just really don't know how to sell what you have. And I actually see that latter case more frequently. And this is not new. This has been going on forever with companies yeah. that are startup companies that, that get going and they sort of stall out because they thought they had product market fit, but they just, what I call it, they sort of lose the recipe. Well, they never really had the recipe. They just you know, had this early momentum. You can teach an organization how to sell products more effectively and dramatically ramp up the win rate. So people should be, if you're a seller, you're a professional seller in a, almost any business, if you're really doing a good job, there's a reasonable expect you should have been at least half of your business, you know, half of your opportunities. I say, yeah. Well, I want to be cognizant of your time here, Andy, because I could talk to you all day about this. Uh, let me rapid rapid fire these last these next sure. couple of questions for you. Um, sure. I mean, we've talked about this. We're completely in agreement with this. Almost everybody in the universe says, yeah, we don't like salesy people. Even salesy people don't want to admit that they're salesy <laughs> for goodness sakes, right? So why in the world? I mean, what's the biggest challenge to get people to start selling like this and stop with all the madness? Change perspectives. This is talked up front. What, what's your job as a seller? Is we basically train people. Your job is to go out and persuade somebody to buy your product. When I believe your job is to go out and listen to your buyer, to understand what's most important to them, and then help them get that. And that's just completely different perspectives about how you conduct your, your business. And so we have to change that perspective at the top. Because secondly, is you know, we could say today, you and I, if we had, if we ruled, you know, the sales kingdom, we could say, look, all that sales behavior today, stop cold Turkey, everybody in the world, cold Turkey, not going to do it anymore. And you know what? No one, not a single salesperson would be worse off for it. <laughs> right? Very true. Yep. No one would be worse off. We could just stop it today. Now I'm curious as a quick aside, where does, uh, um, like principles of influence fall into this because that's influence. I mean, there, so where would you see principles of influence falling in this with the agreement that you're not to persuade, you're supposed to influence um, where, where do those come into to, to being? Yeah. Well, it depends which ones you're talking about, I guess. Um, <laughs> so certainly some of those in the wrong hands become very salesy. Yeah. Right. Some of the like Cialdini talks about in his book and so on, and others have talked about. And there are others that maybe just really aren't what they were laid out to be. Because because there's certainly, as we understand more and more about the brain and how people make decisions and so on, that you know, some of our theories about decision making and from behavioral economics and so on are proven to be perhaps not as true as we once thought they were. And it's really interesting because even if you took those principles of influence, but you did it for the altruistic through generosity and uncover the real reason and use that for communication, uh, understanding, you know, I'd see those still aligning pretty well because it right. is right in there, the influence. So, right. Um, now, listen, you are a learner of learner. You've been doing this for a couple of days. So what, what, <laughs> what resources would you suggest for others to reach out to, uh, to become maybe as, as smart as you here, Andy? <laughs> I'm sure there's many people much, much smarter than I am. Um, 
Well, yeah, we've never lived in a better time to that with access to information, right? This is if podcasting is your thing. I mean, I know several people, you know, lots of people listen to my stuff on the treadmill or on the morning run or morning walk. Great. Yeah. Listen to a podcast. Um, there's all these you know, blogs and people on LinkedIn that, that post <laughs> good content. Yeah. There are people that post bad content too, but so what? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I think that's healthy, actually. I know there's people disagree with me, but yeah, I read stuff every day that I, I just think is blatantly wrong, but yeah, I, how do you know what's good unless you see what's bad? Um, it's factor of experimentation. A factor of experimentation and, and what appeals to you and you, the contrast uh, is really important. So yeah, spend a little time on LinkedIn, you know, follow some people you think are interesting. And, and gosh, there's hundreds of sales books published every year. I just, yeah, I just think it's, you know, such a, interesting time for people to get access to this information and, and make some choices. You said experiment, uh, you know, maybe follow somebody one day and maybe you're later, it's time to move on to somebody else that, you know, is going to take you to the next level for what you want. There's a lot and that's of fine. There. That's how we want to do it is, is just keep finding people that challenge us. And that's, I think more than anything is really the bottom line is who's challenging your perspective on the way you think, sales works and the world works and people work and so on and gravitate toward those. Yeah, I think that's really sound advice. No one's actually brought that up before, but I, I like that, Andy, because if you can get somebody to challenge your beliefs, that's going to be the only way that you get to change your behaviors to that next level. It's, mm -hmm. it's either going to force you to say, no, I'm pretty solid that this is right, or it's going to allow you to get to that, that new level. So I like that. Find people that are going to challenge you. Yeah. Well, and I think as a saying I like, which is, I don't know who came up with it, but is, uh, and it sort of leans into that a little bit. So the saying is finding the facts is easy. Facing the facts is hard. <laughs> Agreed there. Well, what do you see the future holding? What, what, what are you seeing coming down the pike? You're like, oh my gosh, it's horrible. Or, hey, this is exciting. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't have a judgment on it that way, but I think, I, I think, we're gonna see more automation. You're gonna see you know, more AI, machine learning, being involved in the whole buying and selling process. And I, I truly believe, and I cite this in the book, I truly believe that if you get a chance to read the book by um, Jeff Coleman called Humans Are Underrated, really about the future of work in an increasingly digital environment. And what he says and what he sort of summarizes based on his conversations, his research conversations with all these experts in the field is that Humans that thrive in that environment are those that learn how to become more intensely human, he talks about. And what that means is the ability to, to lean into the skills that are, again, are, are more uniquely human. It's our ability to connect with other people, our, our intuition, our, our curiosity, our ability to you know, synthesize you know, all this disparate information on the fly and and ask great questions the result are, are um, well, I mean, just things like that, our ability to collaborate, right? Because sales is also a very collaborative effort with our buyers. Those sellers that can lean into those, I said, those uniquely human strengths, yeah, the future still looks bright for you. 
Yeah. And, and I'd really urge people, and that's at really at the heart of my book is say, look, these are the things that really differentiate you as a human is, is find the path that works best for you. If you can become the best version of yourself with these, then yeah, future looks bright for you. Great stuff. Well, Andy, who should reach out to you? How should they do it? And why should people reach out to you, Andy? <laughs> well, I, th- I think we started that the why should they should at the beginning. It's just, <laughs> yeah, follow me on LinkedIn. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Follow my stuff. Yeah, if it resonates with you, yeah, engage, please comment. Uh, yeah, message me if you want to have a conversation. Love to, uh, like I said, we work with sales leaders and, and sales teams to help them learn how to sell in, how to become more productive selling in. So if, if any you know, leaders or well, sales leaders want to reach out to me, yeah, DM me on, on LinkedIn is perhaps one of the best ways, or you can email me at uh, andy at andypaul.com. There you Visit go. Visit my website, andypaul.com. We've got a little assessment there, a little fun little assessment people can take to sort of assess whether they're selling in or selling out. Uh, it's sort of a spectrum on selling out on one end, selling in on the other. So you can sort of see where you sit on that spectrum. And... Um, yeah, listen to my podcast and go buy my book on Amazon. Buy the book. Well, hey, Andy, I can't thank you enough. It's been a ton of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank um, you, Brian. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. And then really, as we always talk about, learning for learning's sake is pointless. Learning for knowledge's sake. So take one or two great things here. Um, Andy's just got a, a, a just a wealth of knowledge. So take this, one or two things. Don't go too crazy. Boil the ocean. Um, and just start to apply it. And my gosh, be human, would you? Thanks, Andy. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. All right, be well.